we don't recognize enough the impact that IT has on the climate. If we zoom in on, on just data centers, that's one to two percent of the emissions uh, worldwide. And that's on parity with the whole global aviation industry. We talk a lot about flight chain in, in, in Sweden, but we don't talk so much about email chain, storage chain or, or, or streaming chain. Sustainability is everyone's job. And I think as a technology leader, we should be empowering our people to be able to make sustainable choices all across uh, the organization. Because that's really when you're gonna get this great effect and this great wave moving forward and really accelerating progress, absolutely. This is Siana TV. My name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with Niklas Sundberg, who is the Chief Information Officer of Asa Abloy Global Solutions. A very warm welcome, Niklas. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here, Henrik. Niklas, you have a master's degree in information technology from the Regis University in Colorado, an additional degree from the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. You were a professional hockey player in the US and you worked, among others, for Sony Ericsson and Gartner, and you joined us at Abloy in 2017. So you are also the author of the very important book, Sustainable IT Playbook for Technology Leaders. So a lot to talk about. <laughs> Niklas, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Who are you really? What's your background? And how did you arrive where you are today? Yes. Thank you, Henrik, for that introduction. I uh, grew up in Stockholm in... Uh center of Stockholm. I have uh, been working in, in the field for, for roughly 20 years now, but I've also mm -hmm. had a long time per passion for ice hockey, like, like you said, and, and that's also framed sort of a lot of uh, the leadership capabilities and the skills that I've learned throughout my, my journey. Mm -hmm. um, when I was 17, that took me to the United States, not only to, to play ice hockey, but also to to pursue a career in uh, information technology, like you said. So I spent eight mm -hmm. years in, in the United States uh, before I, I moved back to, uh, to Sweden in, in 2003, 2004. And since then, I've been working in, in different um, roles within IT as a developer, mm -hmm. as a manager, consultant, and uh, now CIO for Asablog Global Solutions. Okay. So, Niklas, in this interview, we're going to talk a lot about sustainability and, uh, and about sustainable IT. And you have written this wonderful book, Sustainable IT Playbook for Technology Leaders. So, tell me a little bit, where did the idea came from to write this book? Well, the, the idea came from when we were framing our own sustainable IT strategy, where I work today. And, and that was roughly mm -hmm. a year ago. And when we started to do our research on the market, we, we talked to some of the consulting houses, the big players, also some of the larger software vendors like Microsoft, Salesforce, ServiceNow and so forth. I, I realized that there wasn't anything that for, from a CIO perspective that could handle sort of the whole mm -hmm. spectrum of the challenges, but also the opportunities to, to yeah. tackle as a CIO. And, and that really uh, sort of propelled me to, uh, to write a draft uh, outline of a book. And then fortunately, mm -hmm. uh, Pack Publishing 
um, they were very keen on the idea and we started a partnership to, to get going on the project in, in February of 2022. So Nicholas, let's start from the top. Why is it that CIOs should be busy with sustainability? Well, I mean, we have a global warming, uh, there's a climate crisis and so on, but why is, it, why is this important for CIOs? Well, I think there are, there are multiple facets to that, uh, that question, obviously. I think mm-hmm. one thing is that uh, we don't recognize enough the impact that IT has on, on the climate mm-hmm. and on Mother Earth, to, to be frank, in terms of uh, depleting uh, natural resources that we take out of the ground. Um, just uh, within the ICT sector today, we are consuming mm-hmm. roughly 3 to 4% of the world's uh, electricity or the energy worldwide. And if we zoom in on, on just data centers, that's 1% to 2% of the emissions uh, worldwide. And that's on parity with the whole global aviation industry. We talk a lot about flight shame in, in, in Sweden, but we don't talk so much mm-hmm. about email, email shame, storage shame, or, or, or streaming shame. Um, yeah. And equally, when it comes to all of the devices that we buy, tablets, computers, smartphones, and so forth, somewhere around uh, 2025, we're gonna have 60 billion devices in circulation worldwide. And this is one of the biggest waste streams, the the biggest waste streams, in fact. 75 billion by 2030 is the expectation. Today, roughly, it's 57 million tons of e-waste. And, and that's the same weight as the Great Chinese Wall, to be honest, or in parity of 126,000 jumbo jets filled with electronic waste. So it is becoming a massive problem. And I think it's important for us as technology leaders to recognize that, that we have a very integral part to play in this to make mm-hmm. and build sustainable digital infrastructure. Yeah. Now- the whole world of sustainability and sustainable IT comes with a lot of new concepts and terms. So we, you need to educate us here <laughs> a little bit as, as well. And one of the things that comes back in many, many cases is that we talk about scope one, two, and three. Yes. Can you explain for all of us very quickly what, what scope one, two, and three is in general and then specifically for IT? Absolutely. So when it comes to scope one, scope two, and scope three, scope one is your internal operation as a company what you do mm-hmm. and, and uh, in your daily business. Your scope two is anything regarding energy in terms of electricity, heating, and cooling. So that's an indirect emission. But scope one, scope two is sort of what, what happens within the four walls of your company, four walls within your enterprise. Mm-hmm. Scope three is everything that happens both downstream and upstream in your operation as a company. And typically, this is somewhere between 70 to 98% of your emissions. If you translate this into IT, unless you are a technology company or unless you are a data center company, you're typically typically gonna have a very, very small scope one, for example. But Mm -hmm. you're gonna have a fairly large scope two in terms of indirect emission from electricity, energy, cooling, and, and, and so forth. But also, as we move a lot more to the cloud, to infrastructure as a service, to platform as a service, to software as a service, but also uh, the vendors that we work with, 
for example. That's everything in your scope 3. So in summary, you have to account for your whole footprint within your IT landscape. And that's your scope 1, scope 2 and scope 3. Okay, that's very clear. And, and, and we're going to discuss, of course, how uh, IT is, is part of the problem, but also part of the solution. Absolutely. So that's going to be, and so that's very, very interesting. Also, in your book, you make the distinction between IT footprint, IT handprint, and IT hardprint. Can you explain these three concepts, uh, please? Yes, absolutely. So the, the footprint is everything that you do within IT, really. How mm -hmm. you consume your data centers, your cloud, how you buy IT hardware like smartphones, tablets, computers, servers, network equipment, and so forth. That's your footprint. And, and that's extremely important to build sustainable digital infrastructure going forward. But also, mm -hmm. like we said, the opportunity is to leverage technology to build sustainability by IT. And I think we have, as technology leaders, a great responsibility to ensure that we build this on sustainable digital infrastructure. But obviously the great potential for us as technology leaders is to enable the business to build sustainability by IT. And maybe yeah. the one that's the most obvious one for everyone, at least in Europe, is the EU taxonomy and the new corporate sustainability reporting directive that's coming into effect mm -hmm. in January 2024, where all companies, 50,000 companies across Europe, need to report on their full scope, your scope one, your scope two, and scope three. So that's the most obvious one to enable reporting, enable data and analytics to be able to provide accurate reporting, but also to set the direction of travel for companies going forward in the race to net zero. Okay, super. Now we have been talking about green IT for, for, for a decade or longer. So, so it, again, on, on making sure that we use the right uh, words in, in this, what's the difference between sustainable IT and green IT? I would say the sustainable IT encompasses the whole uh, an ESG agenda. ESG stands for mm -hmm. environment, social and governance. So you need to encompass all of those three facets. You also mentioned hard print, for example. That is the social mm -hmm. aspects regarding sustainable IT. Traditionally, we only focused on green IT and the environmental aspects around IT and so forth. But I think it's also equally important to focus on the social aspects to make sure that we democratize the world in, in terms of making sure that we provide fair working conditions for all people around the world. We make sure that we use responsible substances in manufacturing processes when we create uh, IT hardware, for example, but also to make sure that all of the substances that we, uh, that we buy in the IT hardware is also uh, non-toxic, so to say. So many, 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 many different topics to, uh, to talk about here uh, today. And Niklas, so about sustainability in IT, sustainability with IT. So let's talk first about, well, the, the building blocks. What are the fundamental building blocks of a sustainable IT practice? Yes. So if we look and talk about the, the fundamental building blocks, I think it's also important to, mm -hmm. to identify the key actors that sort of encompasses your sustainability 
enterprise or sustainable enterprise. Mm -hmm. So you have your sustainable enterprise, but then obviously you have vendors that you work with in terms of cloud, in terms of data center. They in turn are also responsible or relying on utility providers, providing either renewable energy, transition energy, like nuclear power, but also coal and gas and so forth. So those are the three actors. But then when it comes to the building blocks, we typically identify cloud and data centers as one building mm -hmm. block. The second one yep. is the applications, the data that you are using mm -hmm. within that. The, the third is IT hardware in terms of your computers, mm -hmm. your servers, your smartphones, tablets, network equipment, and so forth. The fourth one okay. is around energy and how you use indirect emissions for cons consumption of electricity, heating, cooling, and different types of settings. Okay, so let's talk about these different building blocks and let's start with the data centers and cloud. Um, and like you said, um, our data centers and, and compute power, they consume a lot of electricity, yes. a lot of energy. Uh, and, and so where is it that companies need to focus on? What is it, what are the opportunities for, for, for infrastructure managers to, um, to optimize their own data centers? Well, I think the, the, the most obvious one is, is obviously to, to drive down the, the PoE, the, the power usage effectiveness, to make sure that you have as little overhead as possible in terms of the energy that you consume, in terms of heating and cooling yep. and electricity. That's the most obvious one. And when you speak to cloud providers, for example, they tend to say that they have a PoE of 1.08 to 1.12, roughly. The global average mm -hmm. is roughly around 165. There are great providers out there, great um, global data center providers that roughly gets down to 120, 130 in terms of PoE. So mm -hmm. that's the most obvious one. But I think what we need to look ahead of here is actually to build data centers in close proximity to the utility providers and also to enable to recover heat, to transfer the heat back to the grid. And then you can push the excess heat into industrial zones or residential zones, for example, because then you're really sort of getting a positive net effect from these data centers. And when you do that, it doesn't necessarily mean that you should push down the PoE as low as possible because you're actually getting a double effect when you're pushing back the excess heat or the excess water onto the utility provider, for example. So there are great opportunities ahead in terms of building net positive data centers. And there are some great providers out there already. So that's the thing, net positive data centers. Yes, absolutely. And they are being audited externally by external auditors, where, just like I said, with the scope four, which is not part of the greenhouse gas um, emission protocol yet, we talk about one, two, and three, but scope four is something being discussed at the, at the moment that scope avoidance or emission avoidance is something that could be part of the greenhouse gas protocol in the near future. Because if you are recovering heat from your data centers, you're actually preventing 
that you're, you're going to heat your district with coal and gas. And instead, you're using excess heat from a data centers. Obviously, this needs close proximity because otherwise you're going to lose heat in, in the making when, when you're transferring heat. So that's really the importance of actually building um, data centers close to the grid to be able to recover uh, in a good way. Yeah. In, in your job as CIO of Asarabloy Global Solutions, what is it that you have done in, in this area? In this area, we have assessed in terms of the location of where we have servers. And typically mm -hmm. for a global company, you, you have servers in, in local sites where they probably don't typically sit in a data center. They might sit in a data closet or in, in some vault somewhere. Then typically you have some global data centers that you are working with. Maybe that's your legacy, for example. But then also looking ahead in terms of the opportunities and the great unlocks with cloud, with increased virtualization, increased effectiveness, usage effectiveness of, of resources, shared resources across the stack in terms of storage, in terms of hardware, and, and so forth. And, and we have all three of them. And we have made the assessment in terms of how do we optimize this for the future? How can we arrive at a, at a net zero um, target for our, our cloud and data centers? So that journey has been started. We are on a very positive trajectory, I would say, to be able to um, achieve these targets. But it needs careful planning. And, and the biggest effect, really, which I think it's in very important to highlight, and that is to assess the carbon intensity. What I mean by carbon intensity is how much CO2 or carbon emission are you consuming per kilowatt hour, for example. Mm -hmm. So here in the Nordics, where I'm based, we have a very low carbon intensity per kilowatt hour consumed, somewhere between 20 to 30 grams. And then you take Northern Europe, um, Germany, for example, which still tend to use gas and coal. The carbon intensity is somewhere between 350 to 400 grams per kilowatt hours. Wow. So, so just there, you, you, we're not even talking about halving the, the CO2 footprint. We're actually talking about effect of 20 or 10 times uh, the effect um, to, to reduce the carbon emission. And then there are some other examples where you're going to have carbon emissions somewhere between 750 and 800 grams. And obviously, just by making some educated decisions, you can actually reduce this by 30 times by, by moving it to a low carbon region. And more and more of these cloud providers, they're actually uh, enabling policies for this. So you can actually choose what's important to you in terms of uh, leveraging low carbon cloud for, for hosting your applications and your infrastructure. Okay, so you can select at, at, at your cloud providers, not all, I mean, the energy levels and then the emission levels that come with the energy that's consumed by, 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 by the compute power that and the storage and so on that you basically buy with these providers, right? Yes, yes. I would say not all of them are, are there yet, but I think it's about asking mm -hmm. uh, the tough questions. I think the, the major hyperscalers are definitely moving in that direction. But I think it's also equally mm -hmm. important as a buyer 
to have this information and to ask the providers about these questions and to set up the right foundation yeah. from the start. Yeah. So you have, I, I think, researched the major hyperscalers, the, the cloud providers. Is there a one that is better today or is this a moving target? How fast are they moving? I, I would say uh, I'm, I'm quite uh, blown away in terms of the, the, the pace that the things have moved in the last uh, 12 to 18 months, for example. When I started writing the book and started researching the book last summer and for our strategy, there wasn't really that much on the market. Uh, the conversation was not really happening. But then somewhere, something happened around March time of 2022. There was a lot of technology leaders starting to ask these questions. You realize that the cloud providers are also, you know, bringing this up on the agenda. They are having sustainability summits. They're coming up with new sustainable technology uh, options and so forth. So I would definitely say that, that uh, Google and, and Microsoft are two of the front runners at the moment. They're quite ambitious. Mm -hmm. They've come quite far. Uh, they've been net zero or for, for quite some time with carbon emission offsets. But Amazon equally, they moved from 64% renewable energy in 2021, 2020, sorry, to I think it was 84% in 2021. So actually a very, very big jump in just one year to, to move from mm -hmm. roughly 64 base points to somewhere around 84%. So I think yeah. all of the vendors are catching on to this, taking it very, very serious. And, and I think I'm, I'm looking, I'm very, very optimistic for, for 2023. Yeah, so I mean, that's the interesting thing eh, that all of this is starting to work together now. The more that CIOs are asking about this, the more pressure is on them, the more the pressure they put on, 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 on their suppliers and hyperscalers and so on. So, so we see this upstream, downstream influence. Uh, it's it's like, almost like a snowball, yes. right? It's, it's becoming more and more uh, important. Um, so would you say in general then that it's, it's a good idea not only for flexibility and, and maybe for costs, um, but also for carbon emission, it's a good idea for, for companies to bring their applications to the cloud? Yes, so I would say if, if you are a startup and you don't have your own legacy, uh, yes, I would say the, the, the best option is to bring it to the cloud directly. I think there are great opportunities, obviously, if you have legacy, if you have data centers already, I think there's also great opportunities uh, to, to leverage what you have already. We talked about mm -hmm. heat recovery, for example, but there are also equally um, hydrogen storage, for example, for backup, which is being trialed by, by a number of the cloud vendors instead of diesel generators. Putting on solar panels on your data centers. I've seen some great examples across Europe as well. So I think it's also important to assess where you are and, and what's your starting point? How much capital mm -hmm. have you invested in, in, in what buckets, for example? So the journey is going to look different depending on your starting point. Yeah, so, so making our data centers uh, cleaner and more sustainable, I think is a really, really important thing. Making sure that we uh, select the right cloud providers that have a focus on sustainability is a really, really important thing. Let's talk a little bit more about um, data and applications. I mean, we're seeing at the moment an explosion of data and, I, and I, I can't see the end of this because we're capturing so much more and more data every day. 
So, so what's the impact of this exploding data on, uh, on, on the planet uh, in the end? Yeah. I, I think that's a very point you bring up and, and it's a very concerning point as well because the explosion of data that we see, the storage of data is just increasing dramatically. When was the last time you, you cleaned out your own email box, for example? Um, doesn't really happen unless someone actually encourages you to do so or restrict your, your policy. But, um, but roughly 70% of the data that's being stored is never to be revisited again or to be reused. So I think what, what we are mm -hmm. actually lacking and maybe something that GDPR didn't take care of was how do we actually archive this? How do we actually get rid of the data that we don't need anymore? Because I think when it comes to master data and it comes to the storage of data, a lot of data has a timeliness factor. It has a quality factor associated with it. So I think we, we need to make sure that we can actually remove data in a consistent way going forward because a lot of data become quite obsolete quite quickly. And for example, for emerging technology like autonomous cars, it's going to need thousands and ten thousands and hundred thousands of imagery to be able to steer a, a, a car or a, a vehicle in a safe manner, for example. But how long mm -hmm. do you need to store that data? Because in essence, it's being assessed in a millisecond of time, but then when can you actually uh, get rid of the data? I think it's a very scary fact where we're talking about 2025 that in a 12-hour cycle, we're going to generate just as much data collectively as all of the data has been created in the past. Mm -hmm. 12 hours. So when you wake up in the morning, you're going to be either a lot smarter or a lot dumber, so to say. So, and I don't, mm -hmm. I don't think that's sustainable, that we continue to create that much amount of data. I think we need to rethink this in, in how we manage data going forward. Yeah, but fixing that is, is, is very, very complex, right? It needs to be built in on application level, on, on how, I like you say, how, how long do we need to keep this? And then everybody will play at the safe side and, and try to keep, uh, I mean, for whatever legal reasons and yeah. so on, and enough of it. So that's a, that's a very complicated one. On the application side, um, I mean, cloud computing is, of course, wonderful because you have the uh, elasticity and so on and so on. Yeah. But at, at the same time, it's also very easy yes. to just switch on another machine and another machine and just, I mean, it's, it's con so convenient that people don't look at, at anymore on, on, on switching on new machines and, and using more compute power, right? Absolutely, absolutely. But, but I think uh, in addition to GDPR, I think we need some additional um, boundaries or guardrails, so to say. How long do you need to, to store financial data? How long can you store personal data, for example? How long can you store uh, contextual data about people? for example. So I think we, we also need some more policies, unfortunately. Uh, it, it, I, I hate to say it, but, but I think we do need some additional guardrails to be able to, to um, fix this problem um, because it's not going to happen by itself. 
I mean, I've been storing all my emails for the last 18 years <laughs> or so on, on, I'm, I'm, on, on, on Gmail. I keep all of my emails just to be sure that if at any moment I need to go back. So what you're saying is we all need to clean up our, our mailboxes and, and, and get rid of this legacy, this data legacy that's just lying around. Yes, absolutely. We, we need to clean up our uh, digital waste, that, that's for sure. Um, and okay. I think we also need more automated processes and how, how we do that. Or worst case, maybe move the, the archive data to uh, low storage, uh, low um, energy consumption, um, slow, slow moving data sets, for example, or slow moving mm -hmm. data storage. So I think there's also way, ways to get around it, but I think we need to reimagine how we, we manage this. What I also see in my role as a CIO is also that a lot of vendors, they are actually pricing their um, software in the amount of data that you are ingesting into their system. Mm -hmm. So I think that's also maybe something that we need to rethink because it's not a sustainable way of having a business model where you measure on how much data you ingest into the system. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about applications. How, how can CIOs make sure that their applications are, are efficient and that they are that they're building sustainable applications and, and and what's the relationship with there with legacy can you talk a little bit about that yes so typically if you are a company in uh, the size of 1 billion euros for example you will roughly mm -hmm. have over 2000 applications that's that's a fact mm -hmm. and obviously yeah. this is a great opportunity to rationalize your, your application portfolio um, as a CIO, you're always asked to do more with less. So um, application portfolio should be one of the key parts of your toolbox anyway. But if you add on the sustainability aspects around this and connect, uh, if you use the time quadrant, for example, to, to assess your applications in terms of tolerate, eliminate, invest, and, and migrate. That's, that's mm -hmm. and, and in, 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 instead of using uh, cost as your driver, you can actually measure uh, carbon intensity as, as one of the drivers to make rationalization uh, decisions. So I think all CIOs needs to work with application portfolio rationalization to reduce the complexity, to reduce cost. But the good thing also is that you are going to reduce the impact uh, and reduce your sustainability uh, footprint. Yeah, what I learned from the, um, the Unilever ERP director, he, he talked about the application BMI. So what's your body mass index? How fat are you in applications? And so we need to <laughs> become more lean in the number of applications that we have running. Yes. Is, is there also work to be done on the, let's say the developer level? Can a developer be more conscious about how they write the code and, and, and make their code more efficient? Is, is that an important thing? Yes, absolutely. I think, like you said, with, with, with cloud, it's so readily available. Anyone can spin up a server. Anyone can increase the storage and so forth. So I really believe in empowerment in people. Mm -hmm. I really believe in giving access to data points to developers. And I've seen some great examples already where you can actually make an assessment of a 
software or an application in, in real time. And you can give that to the power of uh, the developer to actually have a real time emission uh, or energy consumption over their application over a duration of period. And what I typically have found with my experience is that if you tell, tell them to reduce cost and, and to shut down the environments when they go home for the day, if, if it's a development environment or test environment, for example, they don't mm -hmm. typically do that. But if you actually show them this is the environmental impact, this is the CO2 that's being emitted on the planet because you're running these applications, you actually see a dramatic shift in behavior. You actually see a big yeah. drop in, in, in the way um, you, you're managing your portfolio of applications. But, but typically, um, I would say there are, there are three simple guidelines in terms of how you can, you can empower um, developers. And that is really what we talked mm -hmm. about before, uh, relocation, to make sure that you move your application to a low carbon region when you, you, when you develop in the cloud. Mm -hmm. The second one is right sizing. Back to that uh, uh, example of BMI, the body mass index, um, to, to make sure that you are only consuming what you need, that you're only consuming the uh, software development frameworks that you need, that you don't have 90% of, of software development framework or storage, latent storage, just, just sitting around, for example. And the third thing mm -hmm. is re-architecting, to build it on uh, re-emerging uh, um, architectural principles, new technologies. We talk about serverless architecture, for example. We talk about function as a service, which consumes significantly less uh, energy and indirectly uh, CO2 emission. So relocation, right-sizing, and re-architecting are three great principles as a developer to adhere to. Yeah, yeah because I mean, if, if you think of it, artificial intelligence and, and, and it all builds on a lot of data and a lot of compute power. So, I mean, this is great technology and there's so many, many uh, current and, and future use cases for that. But the impact is also um, can be massive, of course. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about report, about what you say is creating awareness on, in, in all levels of the, of the organization, all levels of the IT organization is super important. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. I believe that this is everyone's job. Sustainability is everyone's job. And I think as a technology leader, we should be empowering our people to be able to make sustainable choices all across uh, the organization. Because that's really when you're gonna get this great effect and this great wave moving forward and really accelerating progress. Absolutely. So data centers are important, cloud is important, keeping your data under control, the exposing data is, is, is important, uh, keeping your application BMI under control is very important. Let's talk a little bit more about the, the hardware, all the mm -hmm. assets that, that, that we're managing, all the desktop and laptops and devices and so on. Tell me again, what are the, how many million tons are we producing of this? And, 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 and so what's the, the big problem there? Yeah. Yeah, so, so in 2021, it was 57 million ton of electronic waste. And the expectation is somewhere by 2030, this is going to be between 70 to 75 million tons. So this is already the biggest waste stream in the world. And it's very, very concerning. Mm -hmm. I think when I speak to my peers, the biggest sort of uh, aha moment is really when they realize that just a laptop, for example, is 
consuming 320 kilos of CO2 over a four-year lifespan. That might sound very, very surprising, but actually 80% of that carbon emission has already happened in the manufacturing process before you actually receive the device in your hand. So then it actually becomes a question in terms of how can you consume IT hardware in a more sustainable way, in a more circular way? How can you find ways to prolong the longevity of the IT hardware, for example? Is there an opportunity to uh, exchange the battery, upgrade the memory, and, and so forth? So it's, it's about making sure that we don't have too many devices, that we have just enough devices, that we use them as long as possible, and that we reuse the materials, the components that are in there, uh, and, and, and so let's talk a little bit about the different steps. Uh, and have, I understand you've been experimenting with reducing the number of laptops in the company? Yes, we have explored uh, different ways to, uh, I think in the past, by default, when we have a, a new employee, we would always go out on the market and, and, and buy a, a new device. I think during yeah. COVID, obviously, with the component shortages, uh, that also forced us to rethink our approach to make sure that we can mm -hmm. actually use our devices longer to prolong the longevity of this. And, and as long as we, you go out and communicate with your end users that this is why we're doing this. This is because we want to be net neutral when you receive a new computer or a refurbished phone, for example, rather yeah. than also the great benefit of saving cost but also to be uh, reducing a lot of CO2 uh, emission by refurbishing or uh, repurposing uh, the devices. Not everyone is super thrilled, I should say, but most people accept the fact, they accept and acknowledge the fact that we need to uh, have more responsible use of our IT hardware. It's a learning mm -hmm. curve, I think, um, and it's gonna be a journey. But when, when we did the calculation and just um, looking at an example of 30,000 laptops, which is mm -hmm. a fairly similar number for, for most large companies, for example. And then you have a, a um, usually typically three year uh, life cycle of those. Yeah. And then you assume that this company is, is fairly successful. You grow by roughly 10% uh, of employees per year. So, Indirectly, since 80% comes from, from um, your scope three and, and in the, the manufacturing process, indirectly you are, together with your energy consumption, you are gonna spend roughly 50,000 ton of CO2 emission over a 10 year period. And that's an enormous number. And this is for any company around the world. And this is probably one of the key things when I've spoken to my peers, when they really realized that oh wow, this is enormous and, and a big impact. I can honestly say also, I don't have all the answers in terms of how mm -hmm. we get to net zero or net neutral in terms of how we manage IT hardware. But uh, we have started yeah. working with uh, global reputable partners that claim that they can, if needs be, because obviously our, our first step should be to re refurbish, to repurpose, the asset, but in the worst case, if the asset is dead, it's, it's beyond repair, then 
it needs to be recycled. But these vendors, they, um, they claim that they can recycle 98.5% of a laptop. What they haven't figured out yet is um, mercury. How do you manage mercury? Because mercury is uh, fluid in room temperature and it's actually still cheaper to break new mercury than to actually use recycled mercury. But I think also with the, the crisis uh, in terms of component shortages, the war in Ukraine, energy prices and so forth, we also see that um, you can actually turn your IT asset disposition process into a cost, into a profit center. Moving from a cost to a profit center because you're actually getting mm -hmm. a fairly good pay if you sell your IT hardware um, after a three to four year period to these vendors. And they can make sure that they live, live on for another three to five years, for example. Every, every year you can prolong beyond four years on a laptop, you're actually reducing your CO2 footprint by 25%. So by just prolonging your longevity with two to three years, you can have an, a fantastic uh, impact on your CO2 reduction, for example. Yeah. Did you also analyze a little bit the different vendors of, of, of laptops and, and devices and so on? And is there a big difference? I mean, and, and can CIOs play a big role in there, putting pressure on their vendors there as well? I, I think when it comes to uh, laptops, absolutely there are differences uh, among the vendors. I think it's very important to research uh, LCA. Um, life cycle assessment of the product or product carbon mm -hmm. footprint. You can Google for that. Most vendors uh, have that uh, readily available. So I think that's one good metric to, to research. I think also the, the share of non-virgin material in the devices is an important factor. Um, we've been looking into this local company in uh, Netherlands called Fairphone. Fairly small, they've been around for a few years, but they also set out to, to produce phones with non-virgin material in terms of plastics and so forth. So their CO2 impact over a five-year life cycle is roughly around 40 kilograms of CO2. Similarly to Apple and an iPhone 13 and 14, they are roughly around 70 kilos over a three-year life cycle. So Fairphone, uh, not only have they built a phone that's very modular, you can replace the battery, you can replace the camera, the screen, the back cover and everything. So I think to put pressure on the vendors for right to repair is very, very important. And I think here, coming back to policy and EU legislation, I think this is also a very, very important area where we need more uh, harsher requirements or more stricter requirements on the vendors for right to repair and also to provide components so we can repair. Yep. I also think what we see is that the circular economy and I mean the businesses that are starting to make a profit out of this is really exploding at the moment as well, no? Absolutely, absolutely. And I, and I think this is a fantastic opportunity because we, we talk about the circular economy, you can read about it everywhere, but, but then when you look at the, the macro perspective in terms of how much of uh, the total economy is circular today, it's actually only around 8% of the total economy. Mm -hmm. So that means that 92% of our 
world economy is still linear. So yes, there's a great explosion of, uh, um, of companies, enterprises exploring this, turning a profit, uh, being very successful. But I think also the opportunity is still out there for grabs because there's still 92% opportunity to become uh, moving from a linear to a circular uh, business model. Okay, let's talk a bit about the, the, the impact uh, of the different crises that we have been going through and going through right now. How, what would you say is the, has been the impact of the, uh, of the COVID crisis? I mean, all of a sudden, everybody needed to buy 10,000s of, of, of new laptops. All of a sudden, we all went on Teams and Zoom and, and, and so on and remote working. Um, so has this COVID, has that, was that a, they had a good impact or a bad impact on, on overall sustainable IT? Well, I think we saw a, a, a quick drop in, in CO2 emissions in the world, primarily due to the transportation sector, I would say. Mm -hmm. Obviously, like yeah. you rightfully said, we, most companies has probably had to buy a lot more uh, IT equipment over the last two to three years. So that has definitely had a, a negative impact uh, per se. But then also, I think it's important to uh, assess what do we do with this going forward, because I think it's also equally important to assess sustainability by IT. If we reduce commute, for example, by two to three, day, three, two to three days per week for employees, that's going to have a positive impact as well. So I think it's important yeah. to also assess, you know, what are the great enablers that technology is enabling in terms of sustainability by IT, in terms of hybrid work, in terms of reduce uh, commute, less business travel. Uh, I think within our company, we see that we have reduced our business travel by 50% by far since pre-COVID terms. So I think there's, it's a complex value chain to assess. Yes, I'm sure there are uh, negative impacts on, on buying more hardware, but I think also to increase the awareness of uh, how we leverage this hardware going forward is equally important. How can we make sure that we prolong longevity of the existing hardware and that we put the requirements on the vendors that we work with to have a right to repair, to have take back clauses and so forth. And that they also have made net zero commitments that are within a tangible reach and not in the 2050 barrier. So hybrid working is, in fact, a very interesting thing. Eh? So, I mean, less commuting going on, also office space. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm, if I talk to some of the big companies, they're reducing their office space with 50% because they don't need that anymore. So they don't need to heat that, uh, the, the square meters in there and so on. So that has a massive impact in, 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 on, on sustainability uh, as well, I think, in, uh, in general. Let's talk a little bit more about the buying power. I mean, our CIOs uh, in, in CIONet, we have a community of, uh, of more than 10,000 CIOs. That, so they have a, a huge and enormous buying power uh, out there. What is the best thing, uh, according to you, that CIOs can do with this buying power? Where do they need to put their focus today? Well, I think, uh, like we talked about earlier in the interview, it's, it's to assess, you know, where are the biggest impact areas that you can play a role. Mm -hmm. But I think, like you said, we have a massive buying power collectively to start asking the right questions. And I think, like I said, something happened in March of this year where it sort of started snowballing, where 
a lot of technology leaders starting to ask these vendors a lot of these questions. And suddenly the conversation shifted quite dramatically. Obviously, you have some leaders that has already anticipated this. And you're also going to have some laggards in the vendor ecosystem that has not sort of seen this dramatic shift. But I think going into 2023, you're going to see a whole different conversation with your vendors. I think also um, the corporate sustainability reporting directive in Europe is going to play a massive effect because it means that all of the vendors that you are working with is going to have to disclose their scope three so that you can report on your collective scope of scope one, scope two, and scope three. Yep. So over the last couple of months, I've, I mean, I've been interviewing top CIOs from Shell, from DHL, from Unilever, and, and so on and so on, all big, big corporates. I have the feeling that, that all of, or many of these corporates are now taking sustainability very, very serious. And that the time of greenwashing is, is, is over for many of the organizations. Yep. Can you confirm that? I mean, you speak to a lot of people on this topic as well. Yeah, I, I think that I'm sure there are going to be uh, greenwashing cases uh, surfacing. Hopefully, we're going to see less mm -hmm. and less of them going forward. But I think what I really like about the topic of sustainability and when I speak to my peers is this is really a topic to collaborate around because nobody has all of the answers. So. I think the most important is to be brutally honest in terms of where you are. What is your ambitions? What is your plan? What is your direction of travel in terms of getting to net zero? Because most large companies are setting these pledges at the moment. And I think in the next one to two years, we're going to see you know, the early progress in terms of how you're meeting these commitments. So yes, I'm sure there are going to be some poor examples, some greenwashing going on, but these companies, unfortunately, they're, they're probably going to be derailed to the dinosaur um, cemetery, unfortunately. Good. So, Nicholas, let's talk about sustainability by IT. How can IT help our organizations to become more uh, sustainable? And, and, and I think one of the most important roles that we have there is emission and energy reporting. So, tell me a little bit, what is the What's happening there? What, what do we need to do? What can we do in that, uh, in that area? Yes, so we, we talked earlier about uh, the EU taxonomy and, and the EU uh, Green Deal. Uh, what came into law uh, just recently is the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, which means that by 2024, uh, and also you need to report on your 2023 numbers, is that you need to disclose your full emission report for scope one, scope two, and scope three. There are also some other social reporting that you need to do in terms of anti-bribery, anti-trust, and so forth. But I think the biggest um, challenge for a company is to be able to do a complete and accurate reporting of the complete scope. Similarly, in US, we have uh, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission has proposed in, in March of 2022 that uh, there's going to be a carbon disclosure rule. Um, it has not yet been decided, but the projections is that it is going to be decided somewhere in the near future. In the, we're talking weeks. And similarly, mm -hmm. by 2024, all companies listed on the stock exchange um, regulated by the SEC also need to disclose their full scope. 
So I think there are okay. great legislation coming our way, both in Europe and in North America. And so that means that in many IT departments, uh, there are people are running around <laughs> now making sure that they can gather all the right data, bring that together and do, and do some transparent reporting on that, right? Yes, absolutely. So I think uh, I haven't seen the sense of urgency maybe yet. Yeah. Uh, I think mm -hmm. uh, this is probably something that's going to surface in the next three to four months, it's going to be somewhere yep. where we wake up and realize that, oh, in eight months, we need to start reporting on this. So, and then it's going to be all hands on deck. Um, I haven't, so to be honest, I haven't really seen the urgency or um, the call to action either. Uh, I still mm -hmm. think the EU is still trying to figure out some caveats in terms of the reporting and the level of reporting that it's going to be required. Yeah, and so we're gonna, I mean, bring together massive amounts of data again to, to do yes. the reporting on that. And it's gonna go back to, I mean, to start with on all the different processes, but in the end, I like we've seen the, the, the example of the, the ABN Amaral Bank where they can do the reporting on application level. So in the end, they're gonna be able to calculate a, a transfer, of, a wire transfer of money from, from one, account to another, what's the, what's the, uh, the impact, the CO2 impact of, of, of individual transactions is going to be fascinating in the, in the end if we can go to that level of, uh, of reporting as well. Now, where do you, do you see that, that this also brings uh, some cyber risks uh, with it and, and how do we mitigate that? Well, I think if we take uh, within the realm of, of sustainable IT, uh, cyber risk, how we manage data privacy, how we manage to keep our organizations safe. The social aspects mm -hmm. around this is equally important. So I think when you create your sustainable uh, strategy and your sustainable IT strategy, it's equally important to do your materiality assessment and also to plug where do you put these type of um, risks that are emerging because they are quite different if you are in the financial sector, if you're on the manufacturing or if you are a smaller company, for example, like professional services, then your risks mm -hmm. profile might be different. But it's extremely important to manage uh, how uh, you attack uh, cybersecurity risk, how you manage that risk over time, because it's always it's it's continuously changing. You always need to be um, sort of ahead of the curve, so to say. And, and to be able to mitigate yeah. different type of threat vectors, really. Yeah, I'm always amazed. I mean, when I talk to CIOs, as I say, well, we're spending, we're now starting to spend between five and 10% of the IT budget goes into, in, in, into cybersecurity. And uh, that's, that. I mean, that's a big part of the budget, yes. right? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I think also we, we're probably in this uh, paradox also where you have invested a lot in cybersecurity, but it's similarly to, to marketing that uh, you, you traditionally say that 50% of marketing you don't know is, is kind of useless. The, the, the challenge is that you don't know which 50% you shouldn't be spending. And I think we, we, we're, we're, we're into that similar paradox with, with cybersecurity that we have been overinvesting quite a bit and then maybe not focusing too much on people and, and process. So I think also there, there are going to be some sort of a, a curve where um, 
the investments uh, probably going to flatten out a bit. We're going to be more efficient mm-hmm. on how we, we manage this. We're going to remove duplicate capabilities that we have acquired because when you look at the vendor landscape within cybersecurity, it's still very, very disparate. There, there hasn't been mm-hmm. that much um, um, centralization or um, uh, acquisitions uh, in the space yet. So it would be good for, 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 for CIOs that there is a consolidation wave in, in, in cybersecurity and that uh, more and more top players and that's easier that you don't have such a fragmented uh, landscape uh, in that area. Very, very interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the role that um, IT can play to help manufacturing process and manufacturing companies to become more sustainable. Can you maybe give a couple of examples of how IT can help in manufacturing? Yes. So uh, obviously the most uh, obvious example, which is not related to IT, is uh, to leverage low carbon steel in your your manufacturing process. That is obviously going to have a big impact. But then obviously Mm -hmm. it is in terms of how you manage waste, how you reduce hazardous substances in your manufacturing process how you make the process more lean and inefficient, but also how you uh, optimize your your route planning for um, the logistics across your organization. Where does it make sense to to build your delivery network, for example? I believe that the the low-cost manufacturing area era is is over. I think we will see Mm -hmm. a lot more regionalized uh, manufacturing going forward. We also have legislation in the EU, the carbon border adjustment mechanism coming into effect in 2024. And by 2026, you are going to have to fully uh, declare and pay tax on your carbon emission when you import into the EU. So I think similarly in the US, you have import taxes, for example. So I believe from a sustainability perspective, we're also going to have a lot more regionalized manufacturing going forward. And that also going to have a positive effect on our logistics network, because you're not going to have to have airfare travel, for example. You can use train, you can use other means of transportation to transport the goods more sustainable. Yeah, I think, I mean, and that's where in, I mean, we've, we, we did our conference with uh, Marcus Voss from DHL. Yes. That's where IT can play a big role, I think, in just making sure that how the transport is organized has become as efficient as possible. And, and many, many percentages of, of efficiency can be gained in that area as well, no? Absolutely. Um, just by uh, planning out your, your route delivery, but also simply to measure how much share do you have in, in air travel, how much do you have in marine, how much do you have in train, how much do you have on, on trucks, and so forth, and to measure towards that baseline. Obviously, if you're DHL, one of the global biggest players on the market, you're going to have a lot of sophisticated tools to be able to optimize this. But for a manufacturing company like us, for example, I think it's important to, to measure the different types of uh, means of transportation and how we can optimize that. Yeah. So measuring, reporting is very, very crucial. On, like we said in IT, but also in in the company in, in general, so that managers on all level and 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 and, and workers and everybody is, becomes aware of their impact, of their process, of, of of their decisions that they make on a daily basis. Yes. Huh? 
in, in um, what's the role that IT can play in, in energy management? What's the role that IT can play in, in, in making our buildings more efficient? Can you maybe give a couple of examples there? Yes, uh, especially within energy management and, and, and obviously within manufacturing, energy is a big source and, and a way to, to optimize that as well. But then similarly to, to office buildings, in order to uh, regulate the temperature, regulate the cooling, the heating, uh, recycling air within buildings, building buildings that are LED um, led uh, buildings, for example, gold standard, diamond standards is important. Yep. Um, there are great uh, building management systems already on the market to measure these um, different types of gauges. Similarly, hotel market is a uh, typically as a guest, you don't think about the heating and the cooling in your uh, room. You want to have it tailored yep. to your own needs. But for hotels, it, it's a very big cost to, to manage all of this uh, heating because uh, you, as an end consumer, you, you're not really that concerned about it. But for a hotel, they really need to focus on optimizing this across a lot of different vectors. Okay. So Niklas, sustainability with IT is very important. We discussed that sustainability in IT is very important. We discussed that as well. Where is it that CIOs can start today to, uh, to accelerate or to get started if they not, have not started yet with sustainability IT. So how do they, can they start or how can they accelerate sustainable IT? There, there, there are two uh, examples that I would recommend. One is to assess mm -hmm. your maturity um, within uh, your enterprise, to assess in terms of uh, where are you on this scale, one to five, for example. And then also to, to align that to uh, the overall uh, enterprise. Um, where, how does this align to your overall enterprise goals in terms of sustainability strategy? So talking about that maturity model, uh, th that's also that's what you have described in your book, right? Yes. On page 300, there you have the five-level maturity model for a sustainable IT. Yeah. But there's a, a second aspect as well. Right? Yes, the second aspect is to establish a baseline. To, to really uh, mm -hmm. understand your starting point. So the areas that we talked about before, assess how much expenditures do you have within cloud and data center, how much do you spend on IT hardware, how much do you spend on energy, your applications, your data sets, and so forth. So to really mm -hmm. uh, establish a, a baseline that is your starting point for, for how um, you can get to your net zero target or to half it at least in the, in the next seven to eight years is, is a good starting point. But to understand what are your key action areas where it makes sense for you to start, I think it's extremely important. And here it's, gonna, it's going to be different. It, uh, depending if you are in manufacturing, financial services, professional services, media and telecom and so forth. So understand your baseline and then to design your direction of travel is very important. Let's talk a little bit more about you, uh, Niklas, and about your role. You're today the, uh, the, the CIO of Asa Abloy Global Solutions. So what is fundamentally the role that you play as a CIO today and where do you spend most of your time? Well, I think I, I have a fantastic job today. Uh, we are on a, on a great um, 
journey to, to uh, reframe the whole uh, access control um, um, space where we're moving from mm -hmm. a physical identity to a digital identity. A digital identity mm -hmm. can unlock anything, really. It could be a passport, it could be a driver's license, it could be a digital key to a hotel, for example. But it mm -hmm. can also be a soccer ticket, for example, a digital identity to give you access to FIFA World Cup, for example. But if you're traveling by uh, commuting by bus or metro, for example, equally, uh, when you blip your credit card and it lets you through, uh, that's also a temporary digital identity that gives you access to the public mm -hmm. transportation for, for 90 minutes. In terms of how we mm -hmm. translate that into um, key priority areas for, uh, for myself and for my team, mm -hmm. it is really to build a very solid backbone in terms of operational efficiency worldwide. Um, in terms of how we manage finance, supply chain, manufacturing, order management, and so forth. The second aspect around this is how do we meet our customers? How do we create a compelling customer experience? How do we build a very good ecosystem where we meet our customers in field service, in e-commerce, in digital marketing, and so forth? So these are sort of the key building blocks, finance and operations. In customer experience but then to underlay that is obviously cybersecurity is an extremely important factor for us to make sure that we keep our assets safe we build digital trust with our customers Man uh, managing the transition to uh, to uh, modern infrastructure is equally important and to all everything we do we try to embed sustainability in IT. We, we, we try not to talk about sustainability as something, as an afterthought that you did with security 15 years ago, where security tended to be an afterthought. We talk about security by design, we talk about sustainability by design. When you have reached that level, it becomes more ingrained, it becomes more within your DNA. So. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so sustainability by design, and uh, so that's so your role is really to help the organization make that transition and to to create the platforms, the security, and uh, and and the sustainability uh, for that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, you and your team. Uh, how would you describe yourself as a, as a manager? What is your secret sauce of creating successful teams? Well, I think I'm very fortunate to lead a tremendous uh, self-discipline, self-learning um, team that are very, very mm -hmm. self-proficient. We have a lot of fun, obviously, staking out the direction of travel for the next five years. It's a very exciting journey. But I think the, the important mm -hmm. thing is that once you have decided on that direction of travel, I think also you need to put a lot of trust in your people Give them empowerment, give them encouragement to go out and find what is the right path for me to deliver on my business outcomes. I'm not a manager mm -hmm. who goes into the details and steer my direct reports on a day-to-day -day basis. My job really mm -hmm. is to empower them, to enable them, to lift any 
uh, barriers to make sure there's financing. But I believe strongly in empowerment. I really believe in that they should find their way to get to the end destination. As long as we agree on the end destination, I really want my team to grow and to excel and one day step into my role. So Niklas, one of my favorite questions in these interviews is to ask you, what do you think your team will say about you when you're not around? <laughs> How do you think they are, you are perceived as a leader? And please give us the good, the bad and the ugly. <laughs> well, I, I think first and foremost, I, I think they, they would recognize me as a compassionate leader, someone that is very mm -hmm. approachable, uh, someone that focuses on building, uh, putting the team first before the individual. Uh, these are key fundamental building blocks for me. I think also they would say mm -hmm. that I'm, I'm fairly demanding, uh, very uh, mm -hmm. ambitious in terms of setting up lofty goals. Um, I demand um, high output, uh, but I also give a lot of freedom. What I, what I usually come back to uh, when it comes to compassionate is that I tend to tell my team that your tenure with your company is not a, a sprint. It's a marathon. You're going to have ups and downs mm -hmm. along the way. You're going to have professional crises. You're going to have personal crises. And you are going to have to rely on your teammates around you to pick up the slack. But equally, when they are down in the trough, you need to pick up the slack for them. I think that's very important. And, and we have seen some examples of that this year where I addressed my team yesterday and I, and I said that uh, heartfelt that we... I'm the most proud of, of my teammates is when they pick up the slack from their teammates. And equally, I know that the per persons in need will, will do the same and reciprocate that uh, when, when needed. Niklas, what is, uh, how, how do you build successful teams? And what, what's your style of uh, attracting, motivating, growing and retaining people? Well, I think first of all, uh, I, I need to be motivated. I need to believe in the journey. But then equally important, I think it's extremely important to have a vision, uh, direction of travel in where you want to go. But then uh, mm -hmm. to find the right people on that journey who wants to share the same passion and, and also give them the great responsibility to be a key building block in that journey. I think it's important to, mm -hmm. to really, we talked about empowerment before, but for people also to see the same engagement in that journey and to be with you and want to come to work and be engaged and, and, and see the next trajectory of, of three to five years. Um, and building a great team also obviously attract a lot of great talent because great people wants to work mm -hmm. with great people. So, uh, Focusing on building a great team, high-performing team, is extremely important because that attracts, but it also retains people uh, in the end. But then also to make sure that you are very attentive to each individual's journey in terms of where do they want to go. How can you as a leader mm -hmm. enable them? How can you, after two to three years, find their next position and their next uh, challenge or leadership opportunity, for example. I think it's important to always recognize that you are 
on loan with all of the employees that you work with and they can leave you at any instant but i think for you your responsibility is really to find their next opportunity their next venue uh, down the road okay super now niklas special in your career is that on a very young age you were on high pressure because and being a professional ice hockey player so Tell us a little bit more about that. What is it that you learned there at a young age about leadership and about success that helped you in, uh, in developing your career? Well, first and foremost, it was a fantastic experience. The people that I met, the coaches, the teammates, uh, the equipment managers, the doctors, physiotherapists, it, it was a, a tremendous experience and uh, a lot of learnings that I still use today. I really learned mm -hmm. the value of teamwork, really working mm -hmm. together, uh, persistence, consistency, hard work, and grit. You're always going to have uh, failures no matter what. You're going to fail on a daily basis in, in professional sports. But mm -hmm. really, it is about having to minimize the failures and to increase your success rate along the way. That is the most important thing. But to have the consistency, to have the patience, I think are two great qualities uh, that I would say, besides um, the importance of team, team, teamwork and, and teamship. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about your personality. Um, and Niklas, you've shared with us that your uh, Myers-Briggs, your MBTI personality type is that you are a consul, ESFJ. So consuls are persons that uh, with extroverted, observant, feeling and judging personality traits and they are attentive, uh, people focused, they enjoy taking part in the social community and their achievement is guided by their decisive values and they're willing, uh, they're willing to offer guidance to others. So I'm going to give you a couple of typical strengths <laughs> of, uh, of a console and then a couple of weaknesses as well and you tell me which ones stand out uh, for you, which ones do you really uh, feel that that they represent who you are. So typical strengths for an, uh, an ESFJ is that they have strong practical skills, they have a strong sense of duty, very loyal, sensitive and warm, and they're good at connecting with others. How, where does that fit the bill for you? Well, I think definitely on, on the loyalty part, uh, the loyalty to mm -hmm. my teammates, uh, to, to uh, stay the course. I think that's very, very important. But I also think uh, the reason why I can have a, a leadership in terms of empowerment is also that mm -hmm. I'm a fairly practical guy. I understand um, sort of the wide spectrum of the CIO agenda. And, and I, I don't necessarily need to be into the details, and, but I can empower mm -hmm. my team to, to do the right things and, and to arrive at the right business outcomes. Okay, let's talk about the flip side, the dark side, your typical development areas of people with your personality uh, type. So uh, consoles, they can be worried about the social status, they can be sometimes inflexible, they can sometimes be reluctant to innovate or to improvise, vulnerable to criticism and sometimes too selfless. So what, what were your personal and professional development uh, roads that you have traveled already? Where did you develop yourself? Yeah. 
Well, I think if you take the, the selfless uh, aspects first, I think that's something that I, I very much recognize myself in. I was a goalie when mm -hmm. I played ice hockey. I didn't really care too much about the attention. It was more about the team, about the, the accolades together that we achieved. I think it's similarly here. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not so much about personal accolades. It's, it's really about what we can achieve collectively as a team. Um, mm -hmm. But then also similarly, there are obviously great uh, improvement areas as well. Innovation for one uh, is one where, um, where do you take the risk as a CIO? I, I, I can definitely identify myself within that. Where do you find the areas of innovation? And where are the areas where you take low risk? I think that's something that we struggle with every day as CIO in terms of with, where do we put the right bets as a CIO? Where, do you, where can you fail big or, or fail fast, so to say? Mm -hmm. So I can definitely recognize yeah. myself in, in that sense. Okay. So, Niklas, do you have a personal mantra, a saying that helps you in your daily life? Yes. And, and uh, this is a personal mantra that actually my, my teammate in, in university um, ingrained in, into me. And, and that is really the true test of class is how you treat a person that can do you no good. I think that's uh, a very important life lesson to have with you, that you should treat everyone with equal respect, no matter where they are, no matter what social status and so forth. I think that's extremely important to always have both feet on the ground and to be very humble and near to earth. Yeah, that sounds like a, an, an important value to, uh, to yourself. Yes. So let's talk a little bit more about your core values. I mean, you shared with us that you have two children, two and a half, five years old. What are the values that you want them to uh, grow up with? Well, I think uh, extremely important to be a good model citizen, I think, to always be nice person, likable person for everyone. Always have an inclusive mindset, uh, which I know it, it could be a struggle for children sometimes. But then equally important to, uh, to encourage them to find their own way. They don't need to live their life through me or my uh, aspirations. They should find their own path in terms of where they want to excel, where they want to go. And, and my job and my wife's job is really to uh, help them to foster a safe environment for them to explore. Okay. In your career or in your personal life, who are, who are they really the important people that you look up to, uh, the mentors in your life? And can you give an example of them? Absolutely. Uh, I would say one mentor that's uh, been f with me for, for a very, very long time is, is Jan Eliasson. He was the deputy uh, secretary for United Nations. He re resigned mm -hmm. a few years ago. I think also throughout his long career, he's approaching 80 years old today, has had a very, very uh, successful career. But someone that I look up with, someone that is very uh, well-grounded, uh, purpose-driven, has a strong sense of ESG agenda, and obviously in his role as uh, Deputy Secretary General for, for the United Nations, he's done a lot of great work uh, across the world, and, and someone that I truly uh, look up to and inspire to, and, and also used a quote uh, that he recommended uh, in the book, where he, he, uh, he said that there, we usually talk about a plan B, but 
There is no planet B. There is no planet B. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So if I, if I look at you and, and what you have achieved in your career and, and creating the book and, and your personality uh, type, uh, Nicholas, what would you say for yourself is your one major gift in life? What is it that you have received from, from nature, from your DNA, from your parents, that you say, oh, well, that, that really is my personal gift that allows me to do what I do? I, I, it has to be my, my internal drive. Uh, that when, mm -hmm. I, when I find something that's important, when, I, when I'm committed to deliver something, I go 100% all in. For mm -hmm. example, the book. Uh, when I found that purpose and I realized that there wasn't anything on the marketplace, I felt that I had something to communicate, something that is extremely important to get out and communicate about in the world, I felt mm -hmm. a very, very strong sense of purposeness, purposefulness to, uh, to um, drive this to the end. It was not an easy journey, uh, getting up at five o'clock in the morning, <laughs> uh, dry, uh, writing six, six days a week between five and seven before the family woke up. But, but I was also driven uh, by a very, very strong sense of purpose because I felt that this is such an important topic to enable other technology leaders in the world to get started. So, Niklas, you're clearly very successful in your ice hockey career, in your IT career, in your leadership career, and now in writing this book. So, you have made many, many different successes, but we all make our mistakes. Yes. We all have our failures. And, and that's where we learn, that's where we grow, of course. So could you share with us uh, in your personal or private uh, life, what was one of your most brilliant failures and what you learned from it? Yes. Yeah, if we start with the professional one and then I share the anecdotal one from, from my pro ice hockey career. But from a professional career when I was younger, uh, starting out my career, I think I was very, very ambitious. I took on a lot of uh, different types of projects. And um, mm -hmm. I, I, when I reflect on, on that period, I, I think I realized that you need to have a lot better focus. Uh, I think if you take on eight to 10 things to do in, uh, you're not gonna do them extremely well, that's for sure. And, and I think that's one key learning for me, that uh, rather take a step back and, and focus on the three to five key things that are really gonna make an impact and you're really gonna focus on doing these things really well. That's one key learning for me, that don't have too many things on your plate because you're not gonna be able to deliver them and, and do it successfully. Uh, they're not gonna be up to the standard that you want in the end. And I think that's a personal okay. failure for me. And a personal learning and as well. I, and yeah. And in ice hockey, what, did, what was your big failure and learning there? <laughs> yeah, the biggest failure, but also the greatest comeback, I think, that was that we, we played at home uh, at university over Christmas break. Uh, we, be, we played uh, Rochester Institute of Technology in uh, upstate New York. We lost 9-2, uh, to two, I think. Uh, the fans, they were turning their jerseys outside in. It was a really, really embarrassing moment. But then after that, we rallied, we won, I believe, 15 out of uh, the next 17 games and went all the way to the, the national championship uh, final, 
where we ended up meeting this team again. And they, at the time, they were undefeated. They had won all of the games during the season. I think they had two ties. And they obviously thought they're going to steamroll us, just, you know, go and collect the trophy. But we, we had a, mm-hmm. a different plan. And, and uh, we ended up coming out of the gate, beating them 6-2, uh, winning the national championship. Uh, and, and I think that was probably the greatest uh, comeback, great success story where we together as a team um, recharged, rebalanced ourselves and just, you know, um, came back uh, as a, a great underdog and, and won the national championship. Okay, super. So what's the best thing that is, apart from this win, what, what's the best thing that has ever happened to you in your life? I think the best thing is obviously my children and, and my family. Uh, to to yeah. spend time with them, to see them grow, uh, it gives you a fantastic perspective in life. I think it gives you a strong sense of purpose in, in your uh, personal sense. Obviously, there are fantastic uh, professional achievements as well that I would rank quite highly. But definitely to, to have children, to start a family is the most rewarding um, thing in the world okay and would you care to share maybe what was what maybe one of the worst things that ever happened to you in your in in your life and and how did you overcome that what did you learn from that i, th- I think i had a, a a fairly early time and actually a, a life-defining moment for me as well which really made me change the course of uh, my life and and that was when my my grandfather passed away uh, um, when i was 15 years old and, and that was sort of mm-hmm. one of my, my biggest uh, life crises where I started questioning what's the purpose with life? Why do you need an education? Why should I pursue uh, an ice hockey career as well? But then also I, I found the strength in that to, to recharge, to find a different venue for me. That's when I decided to go to the United States to, to play ice hockey and also to pursue um, a academic career. And, and in the end, looking at that move, yes, it was really, really tough at the moment. Uh, you grow up fairly quickly, realizing this. But then also, uh, it was a very life-deciding uh, moment for me that really changed the course of my life. Okay, super. Nicholas, we're coming to the end of the interview. And thank you so much for your time and sharing all your uh, experience, your wisdom, your insights. Uh, and, and thank you again for writing this uh, very important book. So... Um, these videos are watched by, by top CIOs around the globe, but also by young professionals that want to follow in your uh, footsteps and, uh, and, and, and want to become uh, uh, top digital leaders. What is, the, what is the advice that you would give to these young future leaders? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, first of all, we talked about uh, the brilliant failure, for example, in, in the professional career. And, and if I relate back to, to my early career was that I probably did and tried to do too much at the same time. I mm-hmm. uh, was a bit too ambitious to try to uh, overextend myself and, and have too wide uh, focus in terms of. I would recommend to uh, set your heart in terms of where you want to go and then you find the three the five uh, key focus areas and you really, really do them well. We talk about the 10,000 hours that you need to really um, uh, create a craft and, and to really uh, master something. I think it's really important to uh, focus in on, on three to five things and, and do them really, really well. Uh, 
And then also, um, it's not gonna happen overnight. The success is not gonna come overnight. And another great leader that I worked with in the past said that if you know where you're going, if you have a great directional travel and in your mind, um, that train is going to arrive at the station. And then when it does, you are going to be ready to step on that train. But you also need to make sure that you are prepared when the train arrives at the station that you can step on. But the challenge is you're not going to know exactly when the train is going to arrive at the station. So you need to be prepared and have your, your own directional travel and own your own self-leadership journey. Okay, super. Nicholas, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. I look forward to meeting you yes. somewhere in the near future, <laughs> face to face. And, uh, and I invite you to have a good Belgian beer together uh, at that moment. So thank you so much thank you. Uh, for this brilliant interview. Thank you. Thank you very much, Henrik. Uh, it was a, a great chat and I really enjoyed it. And uh, thank you for having me.